every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. Welcome to Conversations with Dead People. I'm your host, Paul Smith, and each week, give or take, I'm joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia, authors and educators, to discuss two to four episodes of Joss Whedon's critically acclaimed series, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and its spin-off series, Angel. Uh, and talking with me today is uh, James Rocha, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Fresno State, contributor to Slayage, the Journal of Whedon Studies, and a returning guest on this show. James, welcome back. How are things? Thank you for having me back. I'm I'm really excited to be talking about these two episodes. I, I just like to say be, before we begin that all, all the opinions I express are my own and not the opinions of, of my university, Fresno State. So so if I say that I like Spike better than Angel, please don't get <laughs> angry at the university. That's not an official university position. <laughs> <laughs> is this a thing that you've bumped up against before? <laughs> Our it... university has had scandals, not over Spike versus Angel, but oh, that could okay. happen. So, so I just want to make it clear: send angry emails to me. <laughs> okay, all right, that's fair. So now I'm now I'm trying to imagine what sort of uh, academic scandal could be raised at a university <laughs> by preferring one character over another, but. Hopefully that doesn't come up, but you never know. Oh man, I wish I could blame my opinions, uh, like on somebody else or some other entity or whatever. Like the opinions of this podcast do not reflect the opinions of me. No, that's not how that works. Anyways, <laughs> I don't know. It's all me. People know I'm I'm problematic. Um, <laughs> anyways, so uh, I guess you're you're a busy man you're living a life so let's uh let's not dawdle let me get right into the spoiler warning and we can uh get to the show so conversations with dead people is not a typical rewatch and review podcast uh, we're going to be exploring the plots characters and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole that means spoilers and lots of them so I recommend, if you haven't already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the Series all the way through at least once, you press pause on this silly little podcast now, and please go do that. Um, and while they are doing that, James, if you're ready, let's go to work. Sounds great. So uh, this time around, we're uh, it's a twofer. We're just doing two episodes this week, uh, 314 Bad Girls and 315 Consequences, which taken together comprise kind of a, a two-parter. It's sort of just an extended episode. Uh, and uh, we can talk about them however, however you want, one at a time or as as a pairing. But I just want to start us off by uh, confessing to my... Uh, regular listeners, they really don't need this confession from me. I'm sure they figured it out. But uh, for all of my, you know, at times nitpicky little complaints or caveats about this series, uh, 
I, I do love the show, but these episodes in particular represent sort of the origin story of so many of the things that I genuinely like adore about both series, Buffy and Angel, uh, going forward, uh, with the introduction of a, a brand new character who goes on to become probably my number one, like top of the list, favorite character uh, of both shows. Um, obviously this is the, the crux point of the whole faith goes dark thing. Um, and we get uh, a little more development. It's subtle, I guess, if you're a first time viewer and don't know where it's all leading, but we get some significant development of the character angel in these two episodes. So those three things are sort of the linchpins of my love going forward on this series and angel. Uh, what about you? How do you feel about these? I, I love these episodes. I, I love them largely because of the storyline with, with faith and Buffy, but I think there's a, a lot of other interesting things. Obviously the mayor is, is a really good villain and, and I really like Mr. Trick. I, I don't really like Balthazar, <laughs> but, but I was surprised to find out that he's played by Christian Clemenson who's a great character actor who, who I think he won an Emmy for Boston legal. I, I, I love him as an actor, but that kind of surprised me. That's who was underneath all that. Uh, okay. Well, let's talk about him very briefly. Cause I, I actually meant to look him up because I, I don't particularly care for the character of uh, Balthazar or Pearl, as I think of him, <laughs> if you've seen, uh, Oh Lord, what was that from? Uh, um, the original blade film was he in the original blade film i think pearl the great big uh fat vampire anyways that's what i always think of uh but i did i did love that actor's just campy over the top line delivery uh as the character of balthazar so i meant to look him up and see if he's somebody that i know from other things oh yeah christian clemenson is is a wonderful actor i think the character they're they're being fat phobic with the character yeah and there's some bad jokes in there, but but I do think Christian Clemenson's doing a really good job of of what's got to be a, a very difficult acting circumstance, and so it, it is interesting to figure out that that's someone who who we've seen in other things. Oh, dude, I know this guy. I just, I just finally <laughs> looked him up. This is the way I do my research. I wait till I'm actually recording the episode to look this stuff up. So I just looked him up, and yeah, I know this guy. I love him. Man, I had no idea. Now I want to go back and rewatch the episode and know who it is under all that makeup. <sighs> he, he was hand, uh, Jerry Hands on Boston Legal. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, man. That is amazing. Dude, he's been in everything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Holy crap. Anyways, yeah, I love that guy. Um, okay. So, um, yeah. Where, where were we? All right, so let's talk about... Uh, the show, uh, these two episodes. Um, yeah. What? Where do you want to start? Like, what? Uh, what do you want to get off your chest first? Uh, we, let's just start with with the what what I th think is the main thread: the the different paths that Buffy and Faith are taking. Mm -hmm. And and what I want to kind of look at at these two paths is the way in which they're interconnected. And on the one hand. Faith's path is very interesting because Faith is descending into evil and she's descending into evil in a way that's understandable and relatable because she's 
kind of just going on her own way and things she's taking an outlook on life that we all can kind of appreciate but at the same time bad things are happening and she's not reacting to those bad things well but on the other hand i think what's interesting for me is also that buffy is feeling the pull of faith's path and so it's not that they're on completely different paths faith towards evil buffy's going towards good it's that Faith's path is is enticing, and Buffy feels it, and she she's kind of headed that way too, but she's never going to go as far as Faith is going to go. And so I think that this is a very important point in the development of both characters, and I, I really like that in, in these two episodes. Uh, in point of fact, just a few episodes ago, I think it was... Episode nine, I'm gonna say maybe three oh nine. Uh, the wish, we got to see the the wish verse, sort of the alternate reality version of Buffy, uh, who bore more than a little resemblance to the faith that we're getting to know at this point. That was that was Buffy as the Slayer who had been cut off from her support network. She didn't mm-hmm. have a family or friends, and she didn't come up in Sunnydale, and she was not quite as hedonistic and uh, self-gratifying maybe as the specific path that faith is on, but certainly was as cynical and, uh, and sort of insular and dark maybe as faith is. Um, so so yeah, we've already seen, and there's, I think there's also other examples, uh, over the series to this point where we've seen, uh, Buffy kind of resisting, the the pull to that darker side or the easy the easy path of evil or whatever you want to call it yes. um i mean it's a high school show so obviously there have been elements of peer pressure and that kind of stuff but exactly yeah um and, go ahead and if i could just talk about philosophy for one minute please uh, yeah so so whedon is pretty open about his interest in existentialism and, and if I were to explain existentialism in, in a 30-second soundbite, it, existentialism concerns the way in which we create meaning in our lives. And, and in the easiest way to understand it, we can think about how we create meaning for ourselves and who we are as persons and what we're doing with our lives. It gets, existentialism gets more interesting when we talk about creating meaning for objects around us. I think... Did you mention on Twitter that you're thinking about doing Firefly at some point? I, yeah, I did mention that. I don't, <laughs> yeah. Podcasts, podcasts are bleeding me dry right now, but there's so many things that I want to keep doing in the future if I survive. So, because the, the final episode of Firefly, uh, Objects in Space, mm-hmm. Whedon's very purposely made that into an existentialist episode, but, but the themes of existentialism are found throughout his shows. And, and in this case, I think both Faith and Buffy are coming at their lives in a way that it's, their meaning has been thrust upon them. They are, the sl- they are the vampire slayers. But in another way, they get to decide, according to existentialism, they get to decide who they are. And whether that's heading towards good or bad or just saying, want, take, have. It's... it's it's something that faith is very clear about. It's her life. She's going to determine meaning for it. And 
there's something about that that's a little dangerous because it could lead you towards the dark side. But there's also something about that that's important and freeing because they're trying not to let others set the path for them. And so I think it's good that Buffy is leaning towards that, even though she doesn't want to go as far as faith. And so I think in a way that's something that's would be good for all of us if we could take more charge of meaning in our lives. But at the same time, we, 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 we don't want to end up, you know, becoming evil. Yeah. Um, so think, trying to think of the, the parallels between Buffy and faith. Um, I, I, I was thinking about the way in which they sort of push back or defy or resist authority. So yes. I feel like Buffy, Buffy pretty often confronts authority and defies the patriarchal demands, I guess, of, of adults in general. And obviously like the watchers council in particular, uh, yes. but typically I think it's, it, it's at least meant to be in pursuit of being a better slayer. She, she sort of resists being told what to do uh, because she's generally like more experienced and effective uh, than the, the privileged white males giving her orders. Yeah. Um, Faith on the other hand uh, is defiant um, in a more sort of aggressive and, and anarchic way. Maybe she resists authority at least largely to see, like I said, sort of seeking her own self gratification. Um, but d despite those differences, despite the fact that um, in sort of uh, pop culture parlance, Buffy is coded to be the good guy and Faith is coded to be the, the, the bad girl, I guess, in the situation. I have so much sympathy for the character of Faith. Um, yes. It's, I mean, this speaks to a larger thing about myself. You're, you're a philosophy <laughs> professor. <laughs> we should talk off mic, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I lean so much more towards the, uh, the anti-heroes or the darker heroes or even the, the, villains or whatever of most pop culture than I tend to the good guys. And so I find myself, I don't know if identifying is really the word I'm looking for, but I'm really drawn to the character of faith. And I tend to have an awful lot of empathy and sympathy for her. And even in situations where she does terrible stuff, I'm always at least imagining that I'm seeing the underlying fragility and sort of pain that she's pushing back, back against, uh, that's taking her down this path. So like in doing in doing research for this episode, I I uh, found a an article in a previous issue of Slayage, and uh, I should go back in and edit in a citation here because I don't have it pulled up in front of me. But it involved a um, a study where uh, like a focus group where they brought in a bunch of people who either had or had not seen the show from various age groups and and uh, men and women, and showed them selections of this storyline basically of faith's arc through this season wow. to, to get people's impressions and uh to see if it broke down between age groups and genders and so on and so forth and there was a certain percentage and it tended to be more of the women in the study uh that had like zero empathy or zero sympathy for faith and they came down much more on the side of she's just a bad person that needs to be stopped at all costs or whatever. <laughs> so I just wonder, 
I I find that interesting that there are that there are people who like don't see shades of morality I guess in faith or don't don't see some of the underlying trauma that faith is that is pushing faith in the direction that she's going and and the, there's a, you said a lot that I thought was really interesting that I want to comment on uh, but starting with the study if I'm throwing out my my initial impression as a hypothesis I, I, I bet part of what's happening is that the that women who live under patriarchy realize that even though they're facing oppression in ways that men do not know about and, and sometimes cannot understand even when it's explained to us, those women living under patriarchy still have to find ways to be good and be responsible, no matter how much pressure they're facing that the men around them have no understanding of. And so I do think there's that sense of, I have to deal with this patriarchy, I have to deal with this oppression, and I still find ways to be good. Why can't faith? Mm -hmm. And I think, it, but it does go back to, for the existentialist, there is always this pressure we're getting from society to conform. And faith is resisting that pressure, and Buffy also is learning to resist that pressure. I think that pressure on the show is embodied in the Watcher's Council. And so that's why early in Bad Girls, the scene in the library, when Buffy first meets Wesley, her her first response is, she asks Giles, is he evil? Uh -huh. And and Wesley has, you know, he, he, he kind of takes response at that, but then he gives her credit for, for being suspicious. But then Buffy just asks the question again, is he evil? And Giles responds, not in the strictest sense. And so, <laughs> yeah, but, which, which is interesting because I feel like I so Wesley Wyndham Price is the new character <laughs> that becomes my favorite character of all time <laughs> gradually. Um, but so I'm always I'm always looking to take up for Wesley in any situation. <laughs> However, his his role at this point on Buffy the Vampire Slayer is kind of to represent the at least in this situation, the sort of banality of evil. He is not evil in any sense of the word, even though at this point, newcomers to the series may question that obviously as Buffy does. Uh, but like he, he's just sort of like his banality or whatever. Like there's the scene where he, um, He's like eating snacks or whatever and going through Giles's uh, journals and says, oh, don't worry. I've calculated that their their mission should take them only another minute. There's no concerns whatsoever. Meanwhile, Buffy yes. and Faith are getting their butts handed to him. Um, so and obviously Giles is pacing because he's worried. So that represents uh, sort of a degree, I guess, of of banal evil. I don't know. Yes. By the way, before we go any further, I just want to, because I looked it up. It's uh, the the piece I was talking about is from uh, the ninth issue of Slayage, and I'll put a link to this in the show notes. It's by Selena Doran. It's called The Faith Goes Dark Storyline and Viewers' Interpretation of Gendered Roles. Just so there it is. And I think, and, and thank you for giving that, that source, because I, I want to read that article now. Sounds really interesting. Um, I think going back to... to to Wesley and, and how he's not evil in the strictest sense, I think in, in part he's representing the Watcher's Council. And 
the Watchers Council is that oppressive force. The, they're, they're, they're representing the patriarchy. That, that oppressive force that's saying, this is what it means to be a vampire slayer. This is what you're going to do with your life. There's no other options. And Faith's response as soon as she meets Wesley as the new slayer, she, I mean, sorry, Wesley is the new watcher, of course. Her response is, screw that. And then she walks out the room, right? So Faith has already given up on the idea that other people are going to tell her who she is. And Buffy has to learn that. I think that Faith's descent into evil starts with a very reasonable existentialist perspective of, this is me, it's my life, you're not going to tell me who I am. You're, you, the Watcher's Council, or anybody else, is going to, no one's going to tell me who I am. And Buffy eventually will get to that point, and Faith is, ser- Faith is serving as a guide right now towards you have to move away from people telling you who you are. But Faith is also a dangerous guide because she moves so far away that she's no longer under control herself. And so Buffy is on this ride that Faith is on, but Buffy is going to be on it with responsibility and with a sense of morality, whereas Faith make some tough choices when things go bad. And so I, I think it's very important to see them in parallel that way. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. It just is a dangerous thing. Yeah. The, as with so many other things, uh, the concept of uh, air quotes, bad is kind of a sticky wicket on, <laughs> on the show as in real life. Um, like despite the Scooby gang's sort of struggles now and in the future with ideas of black and white and good and evil. Uh, um, there's a lot of relativity going on here. Um, yes. So like for one thing, stopping the, the bad guy, Balthazar actually kind of helps clear the path for the much bigger bad, uh, that is, uh, mayor Wilkins. Um, I mean, Obviously, they can't ignore Balthazar, but I'm just saying there the like there are relative degrees of big bads, I suppose, on the series. Uh, I mean, what could possibly mo- be more evil than that to-do list, right? Exactly. Call temp agency, become invincible, meeting with PTA, haircut. <laughs> that's pretty. That's a pretty evil to-do list. Um, and why would you get it? Why would you schedule your haircut after you become invincible? Can you even get a haircut once you're invincible? Well, I assume it's because you don't want your barber to cut you on accident. <laughs> okay. Who, what kind of barber is he going to? Good Lord. <laughs> uh, it's, always sa- it's always good to be safe about that. I guess. I guess. Well, I, I, I now I'm adding uh, become invincible to my to-do list. I, I had a barber cut my ear once, so I'm, I'm on the lookout. Oh, man. All right. Fair enough. Um, okay. So what, what else can we talk about? Uh, go ahead. The the other thing that, that I think is, well, one of the things, so going back to the idea that there's sometimes good and bad is coming in shades of gray, but also sometimes it's, it's just coming out as good and bad. And I think, there's always something interesting thing about there's something interesting about sometimes people are good and sometimes people are bad. And I think that what's important is that's more difficult to just be good 
when you're striking out your own life and you're, you're following that existentialist path. And so Buffy, on the one hand, is able to retain goodness while going on the existentialist path. But it's much harder for faith. And I think part of why – part of what makes it harder for faith is that she's not, she's not putting limits on her own path. And so if we talk about you know, want, take, have – or if we want, if we talk about the way in which she's connecting sexuality with violence, which puts her in line with vampires, who of course are in a certain sense representatives of rapists, mm-hmm. and so that that I think is a very interesting parallel in these episodes between Faith and the vampires, in that she doesn't see a problem with with connect with that kind of connection between she's fighting vampires in the very opening scene she's fighting vampires but having a casual conversation about sex with xander and in a way we can laugh at that but also it's it's a little creepy that she's able to so easily talk about having sex with xander xander while also talking about while also in the middle of fighting with vampires as buffy says thanks for the poetry (laughs) exactly (laughs) yeah um And, and of course buffy is able to think that the conversation's weird, not just because they're fighting vampires, but also because Buffy and Xander have what's rare in TV, a friendship between a man and a woman that never becomes sexual. Mm-hmm. Even though Xander has feelings for Buffy, there's no, there's no pull in the TV show to bring them together, which is unusual, because usually friendships between two heterosexuals of different uh, genders on TV, they eventually become sexual. And there's something good about this because there's no reason for that to be true. And and Buffy can just draw a line there and say, that's not how I see him. And even Faith is kind of like, how is that possible? Why not just have sex with him? But of course, the other side is, why do you need to have sex with all of your friends? Why can't you just be friends with someone? Right. Um, well, because Faith's not used to having friends. And... Uh... Yeah, I don't know. So, uh, so I want to talk. I can't remember how much the show ever delves into Faith's background. I think, I think maybe we've gotten pretty much all of the background we're ever going to get on her. I think maybe, when, I think maybe in a later season, <laughs> we get a couple more salient details. But for the most part, I think we've gotten what we're going to get on Faith. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Uh, yeah, I feel like I knew where I was going when I started this sentence. Um, I, well, I, well, Faith, Faith clearly, well, she, she's, she's not Kendra. She, yeah, she, yeah. I believe she grew up poor. She, she felt more abandoned as, as a younger, as a younger child, and and so, the way in which she's becoming a vampire slayer, she's much less controlled than Kendra was. And has to find herself much more on her own because that's just the life she's lived. I think that's right. Yeah, I uh, I feel like there is an implied traumatic past. And please, listeners, feel free to to contact me and correct me wherever I'm wrong here. Uh, but I feel like there's been implied trauma in her past where I assume that she's. Uh, she's never had a stable uh, 
family structure. She's never had anyone who's supported her unconditionally. She has never really had friends. She's never felt like an insider. She's never felt like part of any group and becoming the slayer kind of made her feel in a certain sense, like she belonged somewhere. It also empowered her to push back against people that had hurt her or who she imagined had hurt her. Um, and so, uh, her, yeah, her blazing her own path into the future is not only that she doesn't currently have anybody sort of, um, helping her find, you know, a more moral path forward. It's she's actively pushing against what she perceives as, um, her traumatic past. Like she, I think she's not only just flailing blindly, uh, in the dark, she's also actively moving away from something which is taking her into dark territory. And I, I think some of this comes up in the comics. And I think that yeah. her dad is an alcoholic who abandoned her. Okay. And I, I can't remember how much of this is canon and how much of this is not canon. But I think there is that sense throughout the show that she was abandoned by her father and and she doesn't she doesn't get a watcher assigned to her prior to becoming the vampire slayer. Isn't that right? She she had a watcher, but Kakistos killed her watcher. Okay. And that's when she kind of went on the run. And then um I, even though I literally we just covered this episode not too long ago, I can never remember if Gwendolyn Post was meant to be her replacement watcher. I can't. I, I honestly can't remember. Anyways, uh, it doesn't matter. She did. She did have a watcher initially as the Slayer. She had a watcher, but then Kikistos killed him or her. I don't remember. And I think going going back to. Um... The, the, the point behind all this is I do think that Faith has to struggle in ways that the other vampire slayers don't have to struggle because she didn't she didn't receive the life that Buffy or, or Kendra received. And so she is forced into a position where she feels more alone and that pushes her more onto the existentialist path, which like I said, there's something good about that because she doesn't let people control her, at least initially. But then she's going to fall under the she's going to fall under the tutelage of the mayor, and the control will just come from a worse place in a certain way. But I do think her upbringing is very important for figuring out who she is and fi- figuring out how she relates to the world. And also for figuring out why this is tougher for her than it is for someone like Buffy. But also, Kendra is the farthest you can get from the existentialist path. (laughs) And so we do have this contrast of, is Kendra really better at this than Faith? Because on the one hand, Kendra does exactly as as she's told. On the other hand, I don't think we could imagine Kendra doing all the things Buffy has to do where Buffy has to become much more independent, much more, much less reliant on the watcher's council. And she has to fight monsters and and gods, even that nothing the watcher's council has done could possibly prepare her. Mm-hmm. And so there, there is that sense of Buffy's getting prepared in a way 
that neither Faith nor Kendra really could be prepared for. Yeah. No, Buffy's walking the the middle path, so to speak. She's she's yeah. the compromise between those two extremes where she um like Kendra only followed authority. She only took orders and did what she was told. Faith never does what she's told and refuses <laughs> to follow any authority. And Buffy is uh learning to be independent but also to accept I mean, obviously it's been said many, many, many times that the sort of uh, undercurrent, not even undercurrent, the the uh, subtext is well and truly text of found family uh, is the reason Buffy is the successful slayer that she is. So she she has an element of independence and she does things her own way, but she also accepts, uh, you know, guidance from Giles and she takes help from her friends, usually. But mm hmm. Um. And, and just to throw a positive in Faith's direction, one of my favorite scenes in Bad Girls is when Faith decides they should go attack the vampires in the middle of the day. <laughs> and, and this does mean that, that Buffy is ditching class, which as a professor, I, I do not agree with, I, especially if it's a philosophy class. I do not believe in <laughs> philosophy classes. But, but the idea of Let's go attack the vampires in the middle of the day where sunlight is going to be a huge ally for us. That's brilliant. And and it's Faith can come up with an idea like that because she's not following the rules. And sometimes you, we shouldn't be following the rules because the rules don't make sense. And so I think Faith's path is, is it starts out as a good one. I think it, it, it frees her in a way that Buffy needs to be freed as well. And I think there's positives for Faith, just as there's positives for Kendra, but I think that the middle path is the right one. Yeah. So we've seen uh, Buffy, I already talked about, we've seen Buffy feel the, the sort of draw to the dark side a, a few times, but obviously this is us seeing uh, Buffy is enticed by Faith's choices and by the path that Faith is on. Uh, and like we saw in the witch she could have become faith or a version of faith under different circumstances but then we have the incident <laughs> then we have uh the thing that happens the moment that happens that um lets buffy sort of shake off that influence like shake herself awake and realize that there actually is a line in the sand and that's the death of uh deputy mayor alan finch exactly yeah um, who the show, I don't think the show ever makes explicit, but I read all of this. I read all of uh, Deputy Mayor's scenes that uh, he was trying, he was betraying the mayor. He was trying to contact yeah. the slayers and give them information like that. The questions raised in the episodes, but I don't think they ever just straight up answer that. So I'm just putting it I out there. I'm pretty sure that's what was going on. I think the mayor and consequences, he has the same theory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He said, he says, uh, why did he have, like, why would Alan leave such a huge paper trail? Do you think he was betraying me? Yes. But, um, and yeah, I, I think he was, which I suppose makes, I was going to ask at a certain point, if you felt like, if you remember your first viewing of this and if you felt like it made sense that faith, would go to the mayor at the end i oh that's a good question 
I want to answer a prior question first, but okay. then I want to come back to that question because these these are connected for me. Uh, one, there's there's a question of, and, and hopefully I'll, I'll get your answers on both of these. There's a question of, does it make sense that Buffy and everyone else reacts so differently to killing a human versus killing everything else they kill? And I think that to me is more difficult. But if I buy into that, if I buy into that killing a human is so much different, then I do really buy that that Faith, unable to come to grips with what she's done, unable to handle it in a – unable to handle the mistake that she's made because, of course, it's a mistake. Mm-hmm. Faith, Faith hasn't – when she kills uh, Finch, she hasn't done something that's horribly immoral. We could, we could kind of argue that it's immoral in that she's not being careful enough. But she didn't intend to murder a human. And so there, I don't think this would even be murder. I think this is, this is an accidental killing. Maybe it's at worst a negligent killing. But I think given that Faith is unable to come to grips with what she did, and if we assume that it makes sense that killing a human is worse than killing the other creature they kill – then I agree that there's a sense in which it would make sense that she's going to feel like she has nowhere to turn except the dark side. Oh, there's so, there's so (laughs) much to unpack. There are so many avenues I want to go down. Um, So I have always struggled. I think even from my original viewing of the show, I've always struggled with the, the, the human centric nature, the privileged status that humanity is given by the yes. show. Um, that's certainly not limited to just Buffy the Vampire Slayer. There's so much uh, supernatural and sci fi and fantasy fiction that uh, elevates humanity above any other kind of life. Um, but I struggle with that. I find that difficult. And so, even though I am sort of swept up in the morality play, uh, the, the, the melodrama of this particular story arc um on the inside i'm like i'm i'm much more i'm somewhere in the vicinity somewhere between giles and faith so giles actually tells buffy at one point he says this is not the first time something like this has happened meaning that the uh the deputy mayor got killed he says the slayer is on the front line of a nightly war it's tragic but accidents have happened and i feel that that is basically Giles giving the slightly more rational version of the speech that Faith gave a little bit earlier, where she says, I missed the mark last night and I'm sorry about the guy. I really am, but it happens. Um, And I, I like, I'm somewhere in there um, where it's, it's tragic that that guy died the way he did. um, And certainly Faith overcompensates in her desire to resist uh, to, to avoid consequences or whatever. Um, and I would uh, posit in her own self-loathing, she overcompensates. But uh, yeah, I, I, I feel like the, the reaction to the death of a human versus the death of everything else that uh, the Scooby gang slaughters endlessly in their quest um, is a little bit overblown. So I, I think, that that's right. I, I think so. So one of the things I talk about in class, uh, and and my students probably hate me for it, 
is is the question of how do they justify eating meat when you know we have to herd all these animals to eat meat and in the at the end of the day we're doing it because it tastes better because there's vegetarian substitutes and and you know you can live off them they don't taste as good and and this of course makes my class angry at me and, and there's lots of things they can say that that you know we won't go into here but but you know we we say this is speciesist it's it's a kind of a prejudice against other species and i think especially when we get to angel there's a lot more sense of you know you know sometimes I, i'll ask my class if vampires say get to eat us because they're stronger than us and the blood substitutes don't taste as good right. does that seem justified and, and my class will also often say yes it is and i'm like you don't really believe that but <laughs> but vampires especially early in buffy vampires are just evil with only one and then two exceptions and and but but when we get to angel there's there's a lot of monsters who are are good and and there's nothing wrong with them and, and so you know it seems like killing lorne it would be horrible, but and, and killing Lorne would be much worse than killing a bad human. And yeah. so there is this strange sense of why would we think that it's always wrong to kill humans and and okay to kill monsters when it turns out there's some really nice monsters and <laughs> probably shouldn't call them monsters anymore. And we're probably being bad by calling them monsters, but but. It's like the divide is weird because we should probably make the divide on whether they deserve to die or not. Yeah. <laughs> not on whether what species they're from. Right. Man, this is a, this is oh, this is a massive massive thing for me. This whole uh slay first and ask questions later thing and and the the concepts I've gotten into it on the show before the concept of a soul and whether that makes you redeemable or, or irredeemable or whatever. And this, these episodes actually even uh, touch on that. You've, I mean, we already had the thing where Giles talks about, you know, this sort of thing has happened before. It's an accident. It's tragic or whatever. And then we've got the scene where angel uh, is trying to get through to faith. He's got her chained up and he's trying to get through to her. And he talks about how, uh, First of all, I love Angel, and I feel like he comes the closest to sort of breaking through to faith of anybody, but I'm not entirely sure his equating, uh, you know, she's killed a human, she has a taste for it now. I'm not entirely sure that's... <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't... That, I have questions about that line of thinking, but uh, when he says... Um, you know, the freedom to kill without consequences or whatever, that's uh, that's intoxicating. You think you're a god, you're not a god, you're barely a teenager or whatever. Um, I know what that's like. Uh, it didn't, uh, I can't, I don't have the quote in front of me, but he says something like, it didn't stop until I got my soul back. And when he said that line, my thought was, well, bully for you, Angel, but she has a soul. Right. She is a human with a soul and she's doing these things anyways. A human soul doesn't <laughs> is not right. a cure all and it doesn't clearly prevent people from doing bad things. And the show gets more and more like this show and specifically Angel gets much deeper into the weeds on this subject as they go on, but 
Buffy has already demonstrated that like soulless vampires are not the most heinous evil in the world. We've already seen plenty of just regular humans that do horrible things. Right. And, 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 you know, I, I always, what, hopefully one day we'll get to talk about harmony and, and where harmony fits on, on this like list of who you can kill and who you can't kill. Yeah. Cause harmony's interesting because she, she's somewhat evil deep down, but mm-hmm. she's trying, she's, she's trying to be a good, you know, secretary and, and not, kill people but she also wants to but 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 going back to what angel says to faith and i'll try to defend him a little when he says i had the first reaction you did when he says that taking a life is like a drug and now that faith has done it she she's has that taste i i I felt like well why would that be and i i kind of wondered Connecting it to what Giles was saying, maybe the idea is it all depends on how you process this moment. If if you've done something like take a human life or take take a life of anyone who's not evil, then you have to deal with that now. Even if it's an accident, even if there's nothing you've done, and even if we're talking about real life versus within the TV show, you're going to have to process that. You probably will need some some help to process that. You'll need either professional help or you'll need good friends who love you. And I think what Angel's point is, is if you don't process it the right way, if instead you find yourself unintentionally embracing it because you refuse to process it, then that embrace of it will make you feel like it's okay to do it again or even kind of make you want to like it to excuse the fact that you never came to grips with doing it. And so I wonder if the idea is that faith now having killed a person and never processing it is gut is she's in danger of liking it in order to, to lie to herself. Mm-hmm. That it's okay to do it. Yeah, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. Just in the moment when he delivered that line, I, I was think it, I don't think he called her, he didn't call her an animal or he didn't, he didn't use that terminology at all. But for, for just a brief moment, I kind of bristled of the whole, he's kind of dehumanizing her by assuming that she's just going to become a bloodthirsty killer. But I get, I get what you're saying. And I, I'm sure also I need to put it in a context of angel is just this tortured <laughs> former monster who, yes. uh, who believes that he can never taste human blood without completely going evil again so yeah i mean look at it through angel's lens i suppose but anyways let's get back to the whole it doesn't make fa- it doesn't make sense for faith to to go to the mayor when she does so um how, how do you feel about that so so yeah i think going back to this idea that giles and then angel are, are kind of explaining that it might the lack of processing what she's done makes it more comfortable for her to embrace being bad rather than to go on the path of goodness that requires you to take responsibility and requires you to sit with, to sit with feeling bad about stuff. Right. And, and we see this 
in, in flashbacks with Angel, but but also when Spike becomes good, when Spike takes on a soul, there's that sense of now he has to suffer with what he's done, and then he's just a mess. Of course, one complaint that people have, and it's a fair complaint, is Spike doesn't suffer nearly as long as Angel. But of course, we also need the show to continue, and Spike has to stop suffering at some point. Right. But but there is that sense of, even if it's an accident, if you want to return to the path towards good, you need to feel you need to feel bad about it, and 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 Faith doesn't want that. She is, and and I think it, it, we you know we can comment or probably should comment on how good Eliza Dushku is acting this all out because mm-hmm. she does feel bad about it, and there's that moment when she goes back to get. Uh, Finch's body and she just touches the body mm-hmm. and it's a, it's only a second but you can tell she feels horrible but her response to feeling horrible is is there some way I can tr- I can push my life in a direction where I just don't have to feel horrible about this and I think her going to the mayor is that it's it's her saying maybe this will let me not feel horrible maybe this will let me put my feelings aside because I'm, I can't handle how bad I feel. And I think, but the only sense we get of that is through Eliza Dushku's acting, but I think she pulls it off and we do get that sense of she feels horrible, but she just d- can't handle feeling horrible. Yeah, I agree. So I, I asked that question about her going to whether it makes sense because um, I saw, I've seen two, Two, I guess this makes sense. The two reactions that I've seen fans have is that it makes perfect sense that she would go to the mayor and other people saying, where did that even come from? Why would she go to the mayor? And on reading both of those responses, I like when I read people say, um, you know, it was, it just made too much sense. Like I, it was so predictable that she'd go to the mayor. My thought is predictable. Really? You saw that coming? You, you, that's what you thought is she's going to go become the mayor's sidekick now. Uh, Cause I didn't, I wasn't expecting that to happen no. when I first watched the show. And then no. I read people say, well, yeah, made, uh, or, or that made absolutely no sense. Why would she go to the mayor? And I also push back against that. I'm like, well, I think it makes perfect sense. That she went to the mayor. So as is often the case, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. I don't know what my feelings on this are, but um, I, on and, this, on this rewatch, I, I watched that scene where she shows up at his door where he opens the door and she's standing there and I'm trying, I talking about Eliza Dishku's performance, what I'm reading in her face. Um, and maybe this is all coming from me is she's not sure what she's going to do when he opens the door. Like, she is she's looking for any port in the storm uh she 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 doesn't know who she is she doesn't know what she wants from life maybe she's going to kill the mayor or thinks she's going to kill she's going to try to kill the mayor um but something about his understated casual manner kind of makes her say well i guess you have a an opening like a job opening now or whatever uh, because obviously her relationship with the mayor going forward becomes much more familial. Like he, he becomes the father figure or whatever. Mm-hmm. 
But he hasn't been that to her up to this point. At this particular point, she doesn't have any reason to expect that he's going to be any more welcoming and loving and or, you know, embracing than Giles or the Scooby gang have been. So why does she show up on his doorstep? And my my read was she's she doesn't know why she goes to his door. Maybe she'll kill him. Maybe she asks him for help, whatever. I think there's something right about that. I also think she has four choices right now. She can go off on her own and be independent. And I think there's nothing she fears more than that because that's where she's been all her life. And so she's not going to go that path. The path offered by, by Wesley is that she's going to be judged and, and punished. So that's, that's not an option. Mm-hmm. The path offered by Giles and Buffy is that she's going to have to deal with this pain. And Buffy's making that quite clear with, Quite, quite clear to her that she's going to Buffy and Giles are going to demand and Angel they're going to demand that she deal with this pain and that she suffer through it so that she comes out on the other side a better person but she's not going to do the suffering so she only has I think one path that's to go to the mayor who he won't judge her for who she currently is he's the only person who will say this is who you are today I'll take that. That's who I want you to be. And so there's a sense in which it actually does make sense that he will be a father figure. He will accept her for who she is. But she's only a father figure insofar as she's turned to the dark side. And so he can be that father to someone who's already feeling the way he needs her to feel. And so it's one of those she needs a father figure, but she doesn't want a father who's going to help her get the right to the right place. She wants a father who won't challenge her. And the mayor makes sense as that. And I think I think it's true, like you said, she may have gone there not knowing what would happen, but his reaction to her saying, you have a job opening, his reaction is welcoming. And he's accepting her as who she is this moment is who she can stay. Beautifully said. So much better than what I was saying. I think you're absolutely right there. Um, so, as is my want on these podcasts, talking about this show, I, I want to delve into what I think is some of the problematic nature of the Scooby Gang, uh, mm-hmm. and that's the that's what I at least see as the this notion of. Um, the show does the thing where it gradually turns um, our heroes from the sort of scrappy rebellious outsiders into smug and exclusionary insiders. Um, And it, it's already shown signs of that at this point in the series. And I, in my opinion, it only gets worse as the series goes forward where like a lot of these characters were initially um, identifiable to us as viewers, to some of us, outsiders as viewers because they were the outcasts they were the the nerds and geeks the loners in high school that didn't have any friends or whatever and they come together and they uh embrace each other's weirdness and they let their freak flags fly and all that all the fun stuff that gradually shifts to uh till we get to the end of the series where they are the authority and i'm using authority in air quotes but like they they are now the insiders. They are the, the 
ones with knowledge. They are the the exclusive club that nobody else gets to belong to. Um, and some some of that arc makes sense, this being the kind of story it is, and them dealing with the kind of stuff that they deal with. Uh, but I've always struggled seeing these characters who I initially bonded with because they uh, felt excluded, uh, they felt left out or mocked, picked on, whatever, and they gradually become the ones that exclude others and leave others out and mock and pick on people. I, I'm just going to whisper Jonathan's name here at this point, but <laughs> um, so, and we see it in these two episodes briefly. We get a little glimpse of it when Wesley, uh, he messes up with Faith and he comes back to them sort of tail between legs as much as Wesley at this point is able to do that. Uh, and he shows genuine remorse, general genuine regret for having messed up with faith and letting, let her escape and so on and so forth. And he wants to help and they just completely snub him and walk off. And emotionally I get it in the moment, but still it's difficult for me to watch stuff like that. And I feel like this, the slight, this might be unfair and I'm welcome I welcome you pushing back against this, uh, but I feel like there's just a hint of that with Faith and the Scooby gang, where she's not, like, obviously they care about her and they try to help her, but she's not really brought into the core circle of friends. And I think she feels that, and that's that's also something that she's struggling with. So, so uh, a lot there. So this this is interesting. <laughs> I'm sorry, I talk a lot. I apologize. <laughs> no, no, that, that you brought up a lot of interesting things. And I think one one thing that I think of as, as as you're talking about this is the idea that is sometimes referenced in the show in in a self aware way. The idea that going to this high school must be really weird and scary for everyone else in the high school, mm-hmm. like. You're constantly having friends getting killed and and in horrible ways, and you you know you, you're not going to be safe if you're going to prom or if you're going to graduation because probably a monster is going to show up and eat most of the people there. So there is a sense of the other people in the high school are constantly going through some tragic, horrible life, and and we're not really seeing that. But we know it's happening because everyone in this high school has friends who've died horrible ways. And and this group is is protected and, and they're not, you know, for the most part, they're not suffering in the same way that the other kids in the high school are, in part because they're safer, because they have the vampire slayer. I think part of your point is that if you think about the group, it is an inclusive group. Especially since, especially at the beginning, there's no sense that you have to have superpowers or that you have to be specially skilled to be in the group. And one of the one of the fun things about the show is Xander never really becomes that useful. There, there, <laughs> he has some. He he knows some special military stuff which comes in handy a couple of times. But for the most part, Xander stays useless the entire series, where other people like Willow completely change and become super useful. But but Xander's always the one who, he's in the group, and he's, he's safe in the group, he's kept in the group, 
even though he's not really contributing in the way that the others do. And, and, and that's nice and, and, and it's welcome. And, and that is inclusive because it's not a group of superheroes. It's a, it's a group of, you know, friends who, who contribute in different ways. You know, Buffy's a vampire slayer, Willow's a witch, and, and Xander tells jokes. Um, or is Xander the Renfield to everybody else's Dracula? That's complete. I just completely made that up off the top of my head. I apologize. Ignore me. Continue with your point. But, but I think that going back to, to Wesley, I think that it's important that Wesley at this moment has to be excluded from the group. I think Wesley represents an attempt to overtake the group mm-hmm. and the group needs to move towards equality. And I think that there's always a tension with Buffy because Buffy throughout the series, Buffy kind of feels like she needs to be the leader of the group where really the group is the Scoobies are always working best when they don't have a leader, when, when there's shared equality, where even Xander is considered an equal, even though he's got no powers. And so I think that there's always that tension is Buffy the leader that at first there's attention is Giles the leader, but then it becomes pretty quick that no Buffy's the leader. But I think ultimately there can't be a leader that, and so the group is meant to not have hierarchy, but Wesley is hierarchy. He's taking over and they need to push him out because if he does take over the group, just won't, they won't succeed. They, they won't be effective. They'll have a top down management where, you know, Wesley says in that first meeting with Giles, Wesley says, I fought, uh, I think, two vampires under controlled settings. And Giles says, you won't see that much here. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there's always the sense of top down isn't going to work in this type of situation. Someone coming in who doesn't know what it's like to fight vampires in uncontrolled settings can't tell everyone else what to do. And also everyone has their different experiences. They have their different skills. They have their different knowledge. And so it's through equality that they are best situated to fight. And that's what the group develops over the course of the seven seasons. But I do think, and and I'll I'll go go back and disagree with this point as well. (laughs) (laughs) I think that faith, I think that they want faith to be in the group. I think Faith wants to be in the group, but I also think that there's a tension that's brought up in the scene. I think it's bad girls. I'm I'm pretty sure it's bad girls. The scene where Willow asked to go hunting Mm -hmm, yeah, and, and Buffy is, is hesitant. She doesn't want Willow to go hunting, even though Willow's done it a million times. And so there is a tension where Buffy realizes Faith is taking the group in a different direction. She's not as controlled. She's not, she's not as much of an egalitarian either. She wants things done her way, and she doesn't want to work with everyone else. And Buffy knows if she brings Willow in, Willow's not going to accept that. Willow is in that position that, like I said, Xander's kind of always in. Willow's in that position of she's not powerful at this point, but she's an equal and she has a right to speak her mind. Willow is the Zeppo of this episode. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) 
<laughs> and so there is that sense of, of Willow has the right to speak her mind and she's not going to like the way Faith is doing things. And so I don't think it's that they're pushing Faith out. I think that in a way, Buffy's trying to bring Faith in, even though Faith doesn't really fit in at this point. And so I'm going to say in a positive manner, I think the group is exclusionary, but they're exclusionary of someone trying to take over. Mm-hmm. And that's where Wesley just can't be in. And Faith, she's almost in, but she can't quite make it all the way in because she also kind of wants to take over. So this is why the structure of this podcast is so good. I, mm-hmm. by If I was doing this podcast by myself, which God forbid, who would ever want something like that? But <laughs> I, I would have to be forcing myself to try and remain like rational and thoughtful and <laughs> contemplative and um, like... I would be, yeah, it just, it would be, it would be miserable for everybody, but by bringing in you much smarter guests, uh, who, <laughs> who think about these things much deeper, uh, it allows me to admittedly be the irrational and emotional one. So I agree with everything you just said. And, and, you know, on, on a certain level, I even recognize all that stuff. I'm just allowing myself as the person who has seen the show all the way through and has an emotional investment in, in things that happen years down the line, rewatching stuff now, like specifically the Wesley scene I'm talking about. I adore Wesley Wyndham Price so much, and I know where he goes ultimately, and I know the role he plays in the larger group and the, the story. So it's it's watching moments like this i can't help i could but i choose not to help but read it as oh you guys you should have been nicer to him here or like whatever that kind of stuff but you know rationally reading these things as a real life situation and these as real characters it's you're right of course so well one thing i i I was i want to ask you about because you've told me previously that when you're watching these episodes, you see a lot of the future Wesley in the Wesley in these first two episodes. Mm-hmm. Wonder if you could comment about that a little bit. Uh, well, mostly I was just struck by um, how, like his very first moments on screen. Alexis Denisoff, the actor, uh, his very first moments on screen. Like my memories of him in his short, his brief time on Buffy the Vampire Slayer was that he was complete. He was a complete prat. He was uh, like utterly useless in virtually every single way. Um, And he was absolutely nothing but comic relief and that he deserved every single eye roll and, and, you know, talk to the hand that, that Giles and Buffy and everybody else give him. So coming back to him and watching his first appearance uh, like this, I'm struck by how, you know, he has obviously played off as kind of a prat and they do roll their eyes and give him the whole talk to the hand thing, but he's also like super intelligent. And he, there are moments where he seems to be more in on the joke than I remembered him being like uh, the, the line you quoted earlier where Buffy says, is he evil? And Giles says, well, but she says, is he evil? And he's like, evil like he seems (laughs) shocked by that question or whatever and then he's like oh yes Gwendolyn Post good good it's best to be careful or whatever and then Giles says uh she says is he evil and he says not uh not in the strictest sense or whatever it is that he says um 
like uh, Wesley's rea- response to that is kind of in on the joke. Like he's like, well, okay, I'm glad that's all been resolved. But since we're not all going to stand around and and get to know each other, let's get down to business or whatever. And he pulls, she mentions the vampire with the swords. And so he immediately figures out what that is. And he immediately goes and not only knows what she's talking about, but goes directly to the book and flips directly to the page that has the information uh, and recites it from memory. So like he is a much more capable, competent character from the beginning than I remembered him being. Yeah. And I think also there's a sense in which he he has weakness and I'm thinking of when when they're captured when Wesley and, and Giles are captured by Balthazar and and Wesley start immediately starts snitching uh, on Buffy and Angel mm-hmm. and the, he he has weakness but but he's human he he's he's a real person he he his his attempt to take over his representation of he's representing the watchers council he's in charge here there's something false about it in a in a in a realistic way right he's not thinking he should be in charge he's actually scared and and weak inside but that's who he he's that's who the watcher council wants him to be he he's wearing a mask every bit as much as faith is yes yes and i think that he has to work through that to become who he's going to become. But, but I agree with you that there is that sense of this is, this is a journey that Wesley's on and we are seeing a starting point that makes him look ridiculous or bad in a certain way, but that's only because he is wearing that mask and he's on that journey. And, and once he accepts that he can be uh, equal among equals, then he's going to be able to take the mask off of himself. Yeah. Also at this point in the story, and I, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that this was the intention of introducing Wesley, but I'm not sure that I've heard people talking about this before, but at this point in his, uh, like introducing the character of Wesley is much more about developing Giles's character than it is about introducing a brand new character in the form of Wesley Wyndham Price, because, uh, it's entirely possible that that some viewers might not even recognize how much develop like how much Giles has developed from his first appearance if we're not right. given Wesley as this contrast if we're not shown Wesley who is in many ways the way Giles was at the beginning of the series and now to see them on screen together and to watch Giles uh become a member of the Scooby gang in contrast to the, the snobby watcher of Wesley. Um, I, I think there are probably some viewers that were like, Oh man, look at how, look at how badass Giles is. Now we've seen him becoming this the whole time, but I think introducing Wesley gives us an opportunity. It gives us a contrast. Let's just see exactly how far Giles has come. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. And and to bring it back to existentialism, I think we're all given our we're all given who we're supposed to be. We're all we all have our identities thrust upon us in a certain sense, and it's hard to fight. And they're watchers, and watchers are supposed to take charge and act like they know everything, 
when they clearly can't because there's no good reason that our watchers should be in charge of a vampire slayer as opposed to the vampire slayer figuring it out because they're the ones who actually are fighting the vampires. And so I think that there is a sense of to be a good watcher, to do what a watcher should do as opposed to what they're instructed to do, they have to give up what they've been told they are. And so a good watcher has to fight what the watcher's council thinks they should be. And that's a hard thing to do. And Giles is on that journey and Wesley will eventually be on that journey too. But I think it's, it's always the difficulty of fighting who society tells you you have to be versus who you figure out for yourself that you need to be. Yeah. This is great stuff. This is, this is great stuff. Um, so before we, as as we're heading out, let's um, unless there are other big stuff, big things you want to get to, let's talk about some of the finer details that we've skipped over. Uh, like I, I've talked in previous episodes about how um, Cordelia, post Xander, seems to have developed an appreciation or at least a, a passing knowledge of geek stuff that she didn't really have before she dated Xander. And once again, we get an example of that where she meets Wesley and she's like, well, check out Giles, the next generation. That's a reference. I don't think she would have made before she started hanging out with Xander. (laughs) That's a good point. Um, So I thought that was funny. Um, The mayor. So the mayor loves family circus. And we get that great line where he says that PJ, he's getting to be quite a handful I just want to ask, does that make Faith the PJ of Buffy the Vampire Slayer right now? I, I suppose so. Is she the is she getting to be quite a handful and is she like the character that the mayor <laughs> appreciates? I don't know. Anyways, I just thought Faith, Faith as PJ, that's that amuses me. Uh, on the flip side, Mr. Trick says he loves Marmaduke because no one tells that dog what to do. Mm-hmm. So, so is Faith Marmaduke. Oh. Interesting. It's also interesting that Mr. Trick <laughs> is constantly being told what to do. He doesn't get to be Marmaduke. <laughs> I I love Mr. Trick and I wish he got to stick around longer than he does. Cause yeah, I mean, he's so much fun in just the brief scenes that we get of him. Like when he, I, I love the thing when he knocks that, the guy down that tries to attack the mayor and he's like, why do they always use swords? It's called an Uzi. It would have <laughs> saved your ass about now. <laughs> Or I'm like, yes, son, preach. Um, and this is this is a small thing, but but of course it's also interesting and, and goes towards the sh- one of the things that the show is good at is pointing towards the little problems that that you know you on your podcast point out. Uh-huh. Like the the, sh- the show has awareness of these things being kind of weird and yeah. sometimes points them out itself. Like, why don't more of these people have Uzis? What, what What's wrong with that? <laughs> yeah. Um, oh man, what else did we have? What, what little things did you spot? Um, well, in, uh, I think it was, in, it must have been in uh, Bad Girls. Um, yeah, because it was the fight uh, when they were rescuing uh, Giles and Wesley from, uh, from Balthazar's group. The... <laughs> I I have praised and uh, and cut down the stunt double 
work on the show from time to time. Like it's often pretty great, but sometimes they they clearly made no effort whatsoever to conceal the fact that that person is not Sarah Michelle Gellar that's in that fight right now. And that particular fight scene in Bad Girls uh, is the worst example that I can possibly imagine from the entire series. There are so many shots of Buffy fighting various vampires in that warehouse where the camera, like usually the camera cuts away really quick before you can see who's wearing the Buffy wig. They don't. Uh-huh. They don't in that fight scene. Like there are seconds long shots of her stunt double just standing there striking a pose. And you're like, that is not Buffy, but okay. (laughs) Anyways, just a nitpick that I like to keep up with. To to turn to a a brief moment, but that's, that's a little heavier. um, I think it's, it's both interesting. Well, interesting, funny and sad when Xander thinks that he's the one who should talk to faith uh-huh. and, and, and it takes a while for everyone to figure out why would he even possibly think that? And, and of course it's because he's had sex with faith yeah. and Buffy lets him know that faith thinks the guys she slept with are a big joke. And, and, but she means no offense. And Xander says, why would he take offense at that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but it's also interesting because of the way in which, it's true. Faith looks at sex in a way that Xander can't even understand because Xander still thinks after being told that, that of course he's the one that would have a connection with faith and he's the one who should talk to her. Mm -hmm. So there's two great things that come out of that. First of all, Alison Hannigan's performance, any opportunity that Alison Hannigan gets to be heartbroken on camera is just heartbreaking to me. So not only is she, um, possibly the most beautiful she's ever been in that really painful scene where she delivers the, the funny line of, I don't have to say, Oh, I got it before or whatever. They slept together. There's something about her, her maturity in that scene and her poise and how, how, you know, just intelligent and insightful she is. She's so just, beautiful and wonderful right there. And then the scene with her crying in the bathroom, which I've seen some people say, well, she's in love with, that must mean she doesn't really love Oz or whatever. I think it's much more, it's more complicated than that. This isn't necessarily her crying because she was still holding out hope that they, she would ever get with Xander. This is just another example of he never loved me. He was never going to love me. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I, it's super poignant and painful and watching her perform that is, is painful and heartbreaking. Um, but, yeah. then, but then the other thing that comes out of that is we get a brief glimpse of, you talked about how Xander is never useful and that's hilarious and kind of true. Um, but the closest thing they ever come to giving Xander like a purpose in the group is that he's kind of the, he's, he's the insightful one or he's the one that, that sees people for who they really are, or he eventually becomes that we get a little glimpse of that it's misguided of him to go to faith the way he does and to assume that he's going to be able to get through to her and that he's more important to her than he really is or whatever. But while he's talking to her, I just got a, a little foreshadowing of some of the conversations he will have with characters later, like the yellow crayon scene and, and his talk with Dawn in season seven and all that stuff. There's a hint of the Xander that we're going to get later on there. And, and, and it's in a way, 
while others are developing as you know superheroes in a sense, Xander is developing as an emotional person, mm-hmm. and it, and and he's not there at the beginning of the series, but but he's working on it and he's trying, and and he has to get in touch with his emotions, and that's that's a path that's as complicated as figuring out how you're going to be a vampire slayer, and it just shows you that the show's making real life connections here. Sometimes it's metaphorical. Sometimes it just is. This is this is how you have to get in touch with your emotions, and it's a long path. But if you do it, you'll have that to contribute to to the, your friends and colleagues. Yeah. Um, what else did I have? Oh, I made note of Faith saying, "We are the law." Um, yeah. Because that is like. Buffy is horrified by that. When Faith says that, Buffy is completely scandalized by that notion. But of course, in just a few seasons, Buffy is going to use that, virtually that exact same line. And and it's also interesting because I don't remember a lot of times where they have run-ins with the police, the, the actual police. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's one of those things where you could imagine the police in town should be running into this group a lot. But but they're never, almost never, like, investigating a murder and want to question one of them. But there is a sense of, we don't really know how they think about the police. There, there's, there's Often on a TV show like this, there, there'll be excuses not to go to the police for certain things. We don't get that very often. They just don't ever think of going to the police. It yeah. just, just never comes up. And so them getting arrested and questioned and and them crashing a police car and nothing comes up up nothing comes from it. I think it's it's interesting to have that rare moment where the police are somehow involved in the background. You know, I hadn't thought of it that way, but uh there is a surprising amount of police involvement in these two episodes when compared to the rest of the series as a whole. Now the series is already I think it was in season 2 where they they introduced the idea that the police are on the mayor's payroll and perhaps they are paid to not pay attention to this kind of stuff. Uh, but you're right. The whole subject of the police almost never comes up. No one ever <laughs> in any of these uh, death, you know, murder scenes or whatever. No one's ever like call nine one one. But in these two episodes, <laughs> we get Buffy saying call nine one one. And we get uh, when, when Wesley tells them that uh, he wants them to look into the death of this, uh, the deputy mayor, Buffy's like, isn't that the police jobs? That's not really our jurisdiction. She uses the word jurisdiction. Yeah. And of course we get, um, I don't remember the character's name, the detective who he's, he's been on the show a couple times before, but we do get the detective investigating, uh, like coming to interrogate Buffy and faith. Um, which I think that's the last time we ever see that character maybe, but, what surprised me about that scene, I kind of like the way it was intercut between the two of them. Um, but what surprised me about that scene is that he's standing there in Joyce's living room and he's actually saying the victim was stabbed with a sharp wooden object. <laughs> like the camera didn't even cut to Joyce. Like I'm surprised we didn't get a moment where Joyce who now knows what Buffy does and how she does it. I'm surprised there was not a moment in the script where Joyce got to question, hang on, that guy was killed like with a wooden stake. Isn't that what you use Buffy? <laughs> I, I don't know. I was, I expected Joyce to have 
a moment where she would say, what's really going on here, Buffy? So I'm checking the wiki and I'm surprised to find out. So his name is, is um, Paul Stein. And it says that he's investigated the deaths of Ted Buchanan, Kendra Young and Alan Finch. I don't remember this though. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. I couldn't have named what they were, but as soon as you said Ted, I was like, Oh yeah, I remember that. I remember him questioning her about that, that death. Cause I feel like that was the first time anything like that ever happened on the show, that there was a character that died and then the police all of a sudden were involved. Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't have, I didn't remember that Kendra was the other example, but yeah. And, and, and of course, looking forward to Angel, there's Kate Lockley, right. who ends up not really working. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, the mixture of police and, and Angel investigations is, is not something that makes for good storytelling. Yeah. Yep, that's true. Um, okay, so the last thing that I wanted to mention was just a a fun little structure thing that I appreciated, which is the fact that bad girls basically opens with a scene of faith, uh, staking a vampire that's about to bite Buffy, uh, and faith's sort of friendly, uh, Hey, I just saved you smile is revealed as the dust literally settles. And then consequences basically ends with that same scene, except this time Faith stakes Mr. Trick as he's about to bite Buffy. And as his dust settles, uh, Faith has a much different expression on her face. The whole, maybe I should have let you die. I don't know <laughs> what's going on. Sort of grimace. Yeah. No, that's a really good point because it shows that these two episodes represent what's really a, a large part of Faith's journey from, from, her existentialist path that, that I, I'm trying to argue is reasonable to a, a dark side. Yeah. 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 I, I really like that point. All right. Well, uh, was there anything else? Is there anything uh, you wanted to cover? We haven't gotten to. No, that, that about covered it for me. I thought this was a really good conversation. I enjoyed talking to you about these two episodes. Yeah, no, this is great. And uh, I, Obviously, I need to have you back. Scheduling has been something of a nightmare for me, so <laughs> <laughs> you're um, you're on my speed dial, man. I, I awesome. absolutely I absolutely need to have you back. So if there are any, um, just ignore the schedule that I've already got. If there's anything you want to talk about again in the future, just let me know, and we'll we'll see how we can make it work. Sounds good. So thank you for joining me and for uh, putting up with the the technical snafus we've had and the having to reschedule multiple times, but do uh, <laughs> uh, you want to let the people at home know how they can track you and stalk you? I, 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 I'm on Twitter. Um, I can't remember my Twitter handle though. <laughs> and I don't post much, <laughs> but, but if I start posting, it will, I'll, I'll, it'll be on Twitter. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, are you, you're not on any other social media, no Facebook, nothing like that. I, I do some Facebook, but um, I, I if anyone has like if anyone wants to ask me a question, I'll I'll be surprised, but pleasantly, um, feel free to email me. My Fresno State address is is on the Fresno State Philosophy Department webpage. Okay, awesome. And uh, last time you were on, we talked about uh, you and your wife are working on a book. Is that true? 
yes, we're, we're working on a book that gives an anarchist analysis of Whedon's TV shows and movies. And, um, oh, I found my Twitter address. My, my Twitter handle is at rational, A-R-T-L, autonomy, A-U-T-O-N-O-M-Y. And, and the book is on an anarchist analysis of Whedon and, and the various things he's done and looking at, you know, things like the Scooby gang and asking, are they, are they kind of approaching an anarchist community in some sense? That's awesome. I can't, I can't wait to read that. So, uh, where is that at? Where are you at in the process? We are working with McFarland, um, and we're, we're gonna, we're doing the finishing touches now. So hopefully they'll be at a bookstore near you and, and not too long. Excellent. Well, keep me posted because I'm going to want at least one copy of that. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so uh, thanks again for joining me. And thank all of you at home for listening. Um, as always, you can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website conswithdead.com um, or just subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate us or write us a review. There are other Buffy podcasts. Shocking, I know. Uh, but uh, any kind words that you could spare for us would really help us stand out from that crowd. And if you have questions for me or any of my guests, uh, such as James, uh, or if you'd just like to share your thoughts on the things that we've talked about, please join the conversation. Uh, you can drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at conswithdead or reach out to us on the Facebook group, uh, which is conversations with conversations with dead people never gets old. Um, so next time around, first time guest, Matthew Cravat, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, is joining me all the way from France, uh, to discuss ethics and philosophy in episodes 316 doppelgangland, 317 enemies and 318 earshot. Uh, from what I understand, Matthew learned everything he knows about America from watching Buffy, which may or may, or may not be true. Probably not true, but it makes for an interesting tease and hopefully you'll all tune in to find out. So until then, Gur Arg, everybody. Gur Arg. <laughs>